And welcome to episode 106 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. I thought 105 was last time. Okay. Uh, 106 was last time. Take three. <laughs> Unless I missed the number. Hold on. Let me check. What a start. No, nope, we're 107. We're just changing <laughs> things more than this movie from scene to scene. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Let's see. What? Hello and welcome to episode 107 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we take a long road trip to mom and dad's in our review of Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things. But first, how are you, Scott? Scott, I'm doing pretty well. It's Labor Day weekend. It's been a very nice, it's very seasonable here. It's like mid-70s, very nice weather, been outside a lot, and just overall enjoying you know, a couple trips to the movie theater, because obviously we didn't see this in the movie theater since it's a Netflix film, but mm-hmm. I did see Tenet twice, and I enjoyed it both times. Yeah, I have been to the movie theater twice to see Tenet. I have seen the movie 1.75 times. Yeah, uh, Scott walked out of it the second time. No, I did. I, I don't know if I explained this on our last episode. I guess I hadn't. it hadn't happened in our last episode, but I... The first time I went, the power went out in the theater, uh, or there was a power surge, and with 45 minutes left in the movie at a very crucial moment in the movie. And um, they came in and were like, well, it takes 45 minutes to reboot the IMAX. So we have to send you all home because there we have another screening coming in. And so I had to come back the next day. I was kind of like, I, I, you know, I could have called the theater and been like, can I come back for the last hour or whatever? But you know how Christopher Nolan's like puzzle box movies are, you know, like they obviously, um, you know, they bear more fruit on a rewatch and, so I was already thinking about, you know, when I was going to rewatch it um, while I was watching it the first time. And I was like, well, this just gives me an opportunity to go back and watch, you know, the first part of the movie again, knowing now what I know about the second part of the movie. So I just went back and watched the whole thing um, the next day. So I've, like I said, I've seen it 1.75 times. You've seen it the full two now. And uh, yeah, we'll have our review on a future episode once Jay sees it. But um, yeah, I like the movie. It's good. Yeah. Are you going to go see it again before it leaves theater? Maybe. Um, I'll, I'll think about it. It, it kind of depends on what happens for me in the next couple of weeks in terms of like, Fair. do I get a job? Do I end up moving? Whatever. Um, or am I still, you know, stuck at home with some downtime? Uh, that will probably, it will probably depend on that. But I mean, yeah, like I still don't understand all of it, certainly. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that another uh, rewatch would, you know, would benefit me. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those movies, and we'll get into all this on, on our longer episode, but I think it is really the first movie where I feel like it's actually hard to absorb everything on the first watch for Nolan. I, I He's a director who a lot of people talk about being the type of filmmaker where you really do have to watch his film multiple times to get everything. And I think sometimes that's a little bit overblown, but I think this is the case where you you really do probably need to watch it twice to to catch everything going on. I know I did for some small things for sure. And also... <laughs> To actually hear all the words that were being said, you probably need to see it twice. So take that for what it's worth. Yeah, that that is the unfortunate reality. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess the closest thing would be like Inception, right? Because I think Inception is also very difficult to conceptualize on a first yeah, watch. This, is, but... this feels like a, a mix of Inception and Interstellar, if such a thing could exist. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't disagree. But we'll save our other insights for our tenant episode speaking of other very complicated movies scott uh let's get into what should be an interesting conversation about the new netflix film i'm thinking of ending things yes this film is based on a novel by ian reed but make no mistake this is 100 percent the product of the mind of writer director charlie kaufman known for his surreal medical physical metaphysical stories like being john malkovich and synecdoche new york Kaufman brings that same eye for the fantastical to this story of a young couple played by Jesse Buckley and Jesse Plemons on a road trip to Plemons' parents' farmhouse. Along the way, they converse about their passions, their lives, art, but it's clear that something isn't quite right between the two of them from the very beginning of the film. When Buckley meets Plemons' parents, played by Tony Collette and David Thewlis, those issues begin to become more apparent, and she begins to question whether she really knows her boyfriend at all. 
And Scott, that's about all I can say without spoiling the wild head trip that is Kaufman's film. We're going to get into spoilers pretty early on just because of the nature of this movie. But before we do that, uh, could you tell us generally, did you find this movie to be a fascinating philosophical think piece or is it simply an inscrutable bore? Yeah, Scott, I think we were talking about this before the podcast and this doesn't happen very often. In fact, this might actually be the most we've ever disagreed about a film on the podcast because I found this to be an inscrutable bore. Mm-hmm. I I think I get at a high level, like very surface level, what the film is about. And I like I just can't help but think like I can't figure out why any of it mattered. Like why or like what is the film trying to say? I'm not sure that I got what the film was trying to say. I'm not saying that there's not something the film's trying to say, or I mean I'm sure there's something the film's trying to say. I'm not sure if the film does say it or not, but for for me it certainly didn't. I felt that the first half an hour was interesting. Like I, I felt pretty engaged um, just to kind of walk you through where I was at in the film. I felt pretty engaged for the first 30 to 45 minutes. And there's a point in the film, I think when they start going through all sorts of different stuff uh, related to uh, like the, the parents, sorry, we're getting directly into spoilers here, but like with the parents, the parents age flipping around where the film and what it was trying to do, I think, and the message it was trying to, to impart on me or get me to think about it just completely lost me. I just think like I didn't get it at the time I've reflected on it. I still don't understand what the point of all of it was. Um, like I said, I think I get the service level stuff, like the, like what the actual film is, if that makes sense. Like I, like it is to me, it seems like it is this janitor who we're seeing like clips of through the first half to two thirds of the film before we actually get to the school and stuff. But this janitor's life like flashing before his eyes or, or thinking about something or like trying to recreate his past or whatnot before he commits suicide. But I don't understand what the film is trying to say about that um, to be honest. And it'll be interesting to see what your thoughts are, because I know you have a lot more experience with the film, not just because you watch. I mean, like you watched it, we've watched it the same number of times, but you've read the book. And I think that you have a little bit more time to have sat with what the book was saying and also of course what the movie was saying in its own right because it is a little bit different from what i can tell yeah i mean to some extent yes because i have read the book like you said but also the book is very different like like you say there that like i you know when i say that this is firmly the product of charlie kaufman's mind like i i mean that uh, because i think the major themes that i pulled from the movie are very are, are, are themes that are very consistent in a lot of Charlie Kaufman's work. Now, I have personally only seen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind of his work, but I am very familiar with his other stuff, you know, being John Malkovich, um, very meta movie about going into John Malkovich's head. Adaptation is literally Charlie Kaufman writing a movie about Charlie Kaufman trying to write a movie based on the Susan Orlean novel and Nicolas Cage plays Charlie Kaufman. And I mean, it's, you know, literally the most meta thing you can think of. Um, and so there's, there are a lot of meta narratives going on in all of his work, sort of about the creation of art. Um, and I think that is a thread in, in this movie to, if I had to like, and look, I'm not going to pretend I have all the answers because there's just no way, right. You have to, you have to rewatch this movie just like, uh, just like Tenet, honestly, to, to get all of the little clues and stuff. Even if you've come in, even with, if you come in with the book knowledge of like, hey, I know what the ending is, right? Like, I know what you're talking about uh, um, as far as what you're seeing the whole time is basically this older janitor uh, idealizing uh, what could have been, right? If, it, if he had actually gotten to know this woman that he had a chance encounter with, right? It, it, that's all That's all it was. It was It was a chance encounter. You know, Jesse Buckley has the scene at the end of the movie where she's talking to the janitor and that's how she describes it. She, you know, they were in a bar, he was creeping on her and that was it. But this is, you know, in his mind, this is him imagining, hey, if I had actually, you know, shot my shot or whatever, um, this is how things might've played out, um, which of course is probably BS still. But um, I mean, that's part of what Kaufman is trying to say, I think, but- so I think on a narrow level, this movie is kind of about the invention of a manic pixie dream girl, right? Um, which I think is so interesting because um, because Kaufman, because Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is like one of the most famous examples of having a manic pixie dream girl, right? Of Kate Winslet's character is like the most famous example of that trope. But I think so. So there is an amount, there is a, a level of like self reflection and vulnerability that is going on here from Kaufman as a writer, which I think is interesting. 
But also I think he's portraying the manic pixie dream girl in a very different way, right? Like, um, it, well, to some, to some extent, I think here the, the purpose of the, like the way he sets up the trope is like this person exists and, and, and she has a very, very, um, on the nose monologue, honestly, about this whole idea of like, I've been here only to approve of what Jake, uh, of Jake and what he, um, you know, what he says. And, uh, I am simply, you know, a vessel for, um, gassing him up basically for lack of a better phrase. Um, and I think we, we see that played out throughout the movie, right? Like Jake is constantly talking down to her. He's constantly, um, relying on his knowledge of like random, not, you know, books or, you know, movies or whatever. And like, he's like, have you read this or whatever? And then like proceeds to tell her about it and stuff. You know, it's, it's really odious. Like he, um, you know, he, he obviously takes so much pleasure in how much more knowledge he has than everyone else. And especially this, you know, woman that he is, he has created specifically for that purpose. Right. And so I think there's, there's some ideas going on there. I don't want to, you know, lay all my thoughts out here at the beginning, but I, I think there are some, ideas going on here about like geniuses or people that we, we idealize as geniuses or like great men. Um, and, um, and, and sort of the thing, the, the lies that they tell themselves maybe about like how the rest of the world is treating them and the way the, the fact that they I interpret certain behaviors as like slights on their character as, or as slights on their knowledge, um, or, or whatever. And, um, and so I think, again, I don't, I don't want to say too much up front, but what I will say just about the film on a surface level, I, I really, really love the movie. Um, I think on a rewatch, this could grow to be my favorite movie of the year um, so far. Um, I think that it's, it's fascinating to watch. I was gripped the whole time. Um, I find all of his experimentation very interesting. I, I do think that almost all of it has a purpose. Um, I don't know. Again, I don't know that I have the answer for what the, necessarily what the purpose of everything is but like there's so much going on there are like so many themes and ideas i think that um that it again it a rewatch is almost like required um i think the performances are amazing like i think jesse buckley and jesse Plemons, honestly but i think jesse buckley especially this is the best performance i've seen this year and probably might not see a better one this year i think the way her performance has to constantly change over the course of these scenes is like um the degree of difficulty is through the roof. Like it reminds me of Naomi Watts in Mulholland Drive, which I think is one of the greatest performances ever. But um, you know, that again, like I said, the the way that she has to adapt her performance as the scene, as the movie goes on, honestly, in every single scene, it is very difficult, and she pulls it off flawlessly. I think, and I think that Kaufman um, creates a really unsettling atmosphere. Um, you know, talking about Mulholland Drive, I think there's a lot of Lynchian. Uh, feel to the way that uh, he, in particular, the scene at the parents' house and everything, the way that there are just these little details, right, that are off. And it's not like they're, you know, the world is is exploding in front of him or the house is falling down or anything like this. But there's just these little things or little interactions that aren't quite right. And I think that almost is more unsettling than like, uh, you know, goblins or whatever, you know, you know, g generic horror movie creatures, right? Like this is not a genre film, even though the trailer makes it look like it could be a horror movie. But anyway, I probably said too much for general impressions anyway, but um, let's get into um, the performances. Like I was talking about there, Scott, Jesse Buckley and Jesse Plemons, e even, you know, even there with the casting, right? He's, he's, he's having fun with the fact that he cast two people named Jesse. <laughs> uh, yeah, in, but he much he much preferred to have had Brie Larson, I'm sure, which is who was originally. Right. Uh, yeah. But so maybe he just stumbled into that. But I still think it's kind of funny after you watch the movie. But um, but yeah, so Jesse Buckley, obviously, we we're big fans of her performance last year in Wild Rose. Um, Jesse Plemons, someone who's been doing, you know, kind of character work for many years now. Uh, and then you have Tony Collette and David Thewlis, who stood out from you for, um, from this small ensemble. Who stood out? Honestly, uh, probably Tony Collette uh, in terms of the ensemble there. I think that her performance, maybe because it's not, I mean, both the parents aren't on the screen for that long. I mean, they have a chunk of the film that's probably, what, 30, 40 minutes at most that they're a part of. And I, and I thought that she stuck out the most there. Uh, I, look, I think all the performances are good. I think Tony Collette is like maybe the one that stands out the most. I wouldn't go as far to say that I think these are like, the most amazing performances. And I think part of that is just because 
again, nothing to the performances themselves, but like these, like the movie just doesn't make any sense to me. I like, I hear what you're saying about some parts of it, but it seems like that you have to do like all this homework to really understand what's like going on in the film before you even watch it. Like you have to be familiar with Charlie Kaufman to pick up on these like meta themes. You like probably had to have watched Oklahoma to understand half of the references the film's even making. Um, but to me, I think Tony Collette in terms of like a singular performance that sticks in my brain, that's going to stick with me a little bit more. I think, I think it's that one just because that is the part of the movie that feels where you really feel unsettled because the first part's like, there's this long philosophical discussion where things still don't feel quite right just because of the dynamic between um, mm -hmm. the two Jesse's in terms of acting here. Um, I don't even know what you'd call Jesse Buckley's character. She goes by like six different names over the course of the film. Uh, we'll call her Lucy for the sake of it. Yeah. Between Lucy and Jake, I think you don't really know what's uh, like something feels off there just because the dynamic that they have. But I think that you really start to feel unsettled when you get to the house. And I think Tony Collette drives a lot of that. David Thewlis, I mean, he does too, but it, that felt more uncomfortable than than unset. Like, I, I, like there's like some slight difference between like how I was feeling with David Thewlis being, I don't know, kind of a creep and um, Tony Collette's like unsettling performance, I guess, if that if that makes the most sense. But look, I think all their performances are good, but I don't know if I'm going to really remember any of these performances just because of how I'm feeling about the movie right now. Yeah, I, I mean, I, and look, uh, in general, obviously, although we disagree strongly about the film, I understand why people would hate it, right? Like, it, it is truly a love it or hate it type of movie. Look, uh, I, 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 like, I also want to be clear, like, I don't hate the film. I know that off, like, off air, I was being a little bit more, yeah. I don't know, uh, hyperbolic about how I was feeling about the film. I just, I just think, like, I wouldn't recommend the movie to anyone. Like, I just don't get it. Like, I think you just have to do so much work to even get to a place where you can appreciate the film, I guess is what I'm saying. I, I understand what you're saying. I think that is true of the Oklahoma stuff, although I don't think it's, I wouldn't agree that, like, you half the references in the movie are about Oklahoma. I mean, it, it's yeah, really, for sure. really, there's, it's, a lot of, it's, there's a whole scene from Oklahoma in the movie. Right. Though. There's this final sequence, right? But even still, like, Yes, it, knowing Oklahoma will help because in reading about it more, it's like the context of the songs around the song that he is yeah. singing at the end is also relevant. But if you just listen to the lyrics of the song that he sings at the end, you can, you know, you can see how that, you know, in a vacuum relates to the movie. But um, but yes, so so that part, yes. But like the whole, you know, being familiar with Charlie Kaufman thing. Yeah, I think this probably should not be your first Charlie Kaufman film. Um, and it was for me, to be honest. Yeah, for right. And that's what that's what a lot of people seem to be saying. I think that this is his. I mean, I heard that it was this was his least accessible film, like you know, a few weeks ago or whatever. But I also think, like, look, I've only seen one Charlie Kaufman movie, right? Um, I only know you know basic things about the other movies, but I think I understand enough to understand how this is connected to how how you know a lot of the themes here again about the creation of art and um, really what are creation of art and a creation of idealized narrate uh narrative says about us as people um i understand that to be a consistent theme of kaufman's work and like you know i understand hey there's the manic pixie dream girl and eternal sunshine i'm sure there's a lot more layers uh, that i don't understand but um and actually there is one other thing that i'll bring up that i know that kind of relates to kaufman's background uh, and also connects in this film but um as far as the performances, I mean, look, like I said, I think when I read the book, I thought Jesse Plemons is perfect for this part of Jake. And I think that is true. He has this sort of uh, awkward charm a little bit, but also like he can do like the, oh, there's something else lurking beneath this a little bit, which I think is what this character is all about. He he's uh, I think he is a little bit inscrutable, but I think that's that's for a reason, because he's putting on a front. Um, and I, I just think he comes off very believably as this sort of pretentious guy, right? Who's always talking down to people and he always wants to show off his knowledge. I mean, look, we find out that in his idealized narrative, the, that the two of them have met, um, well, okay. So the first thing, first story that we hear is that they have met at like a trivia night, right? And trivia, the very purpose of that is like to display that you have more knowledge than other people or whatever. So the very fact yeah, that and his team won, yeah. that is the scenario. And the, the in, initial interaction they had is her asking him about what is the, explain to me your complicated team name or whatever that has something to do with like Russian history. So the fact that that is the narrative that he created says a lot. But anyway, I thought Jesse Plemons was very believable in that role. I think Jesse Buckley, amazing, like I said. Um, there's so much that she has to do with this performance. 
because, you know, you think she's just like the normal audience surrogate when this movie starts out. But then, you know, the the uh, way we see things starts getting tweaked. Like we get to the parents' house. You know, there's awkward interactions between her and the parents. The parents are acting weird towards her, but then she also sort of starts to mirror their behavior, right? And then there's this whole sequence where she's reciting Pauline Kael's review of uh, a woman under the influence in the car, which I thought was an amazing scene. And her performance in the scene um, was was brilliant. So I am so impressed with her um, just from these two performances that I've seen of her as an actress. I think um, she's not going to be a movie star, right? She's not going to be... Uh, you know, a Nicole Kidman or Amy Adams or somebody who can headline a movie probably, but I can totally see her being the type of actress who is, you know, very well regarded in like these types of indie films and stuff like this as, as, uh, as the years go on, because I think, uh, the, again, there's a very high degree of difficulty um, here and, and she pulls it off. As for the parents. Yeah. I think, I, I think that Jesse Buckley could, could be a movie star. I mean, look, I hope so. I hope that everyone will get I think to know if, if Brie Larson can be a movie star, I think Jesse Buckley can be. Yeah, no, that's that's a good that's probably a good comparison point. I don't know if I could see Jesse Buckley doing a superhero movie, but that might have to be that might be what it would have to take for her to get there. Um Maybe. so yeah. But I think Tony Collette and David Thewlis are are also good. I like the way that they are portrayed again, because I think that we're meant to understand that like their behavior, you know, he, he's, he is remembering their behavior from different points in his life. Right. That is why yeah. they are aging because yeah. he's remembering, you know, them at different times and aging and, differently at different times. Yeah. But also some of their behavior and in particular, the father's behavior kind of explains maybe in some ways why Jake is the way that he is or why the janitor is. We don't even know if his name is Jake, but um, why he is the way that he is. Right. Because, Look, we see him calling. He, he, there's that conversation about the Billy Crystal movie. He's like, oh, Billy Crystal is a Nancy or whatever. <laughs> um, and then there's the whole painting thing, right? There's a long conversation about paintings. And he's very, very dismissive of what we think at the time is her painting, her okay. paintings, because they're just landscapes and don't have any people in them. But then we later learn those are Jake's paintings, right? She finds them in his room. Um, obviously, again, this is just him supplanting his own past and background onto her character. And so you see, hey, these are probably things that happened to Jake, right? As a young uh, kid, as a young, you know, genius or whatever, like, you know, being probably having more knowledge than other kids. That's how he's referred to a lot. That's how his parents talk to him about him a lot as like, oh, he was so much smarter than the other kids, but like he, you know, he, he wasn't, he didn't have friends, whatever, like he didn't connect with them. Um, and, but like the parent, you know, the I think the whole par parent's, scenes are meant to like try to give us some sort of you know interiority into why that is the case because you know his uh his father at least seems to like look at his genius in a very dismissive way um but also like there's, there's also not a trustworthy narrative like you don't know what's true and what's not true in this in these scenes maybe i mean i i think we know enough to know that he is he is drawing on his past experiences and that some version yeah, of yes, that's probably but, but distorting distorting the experiences is more what I'm talking about. Not yeah, that I, not that he didn't make these paintings and they didn't judge him for it, but like how they judged him for it is yeah. distorted. Well, but yeah, and I think that's part of it too. I think the distortion of it is part of it, right? Because he's taking these um these comments made by his parents or whatever as like these huge this this huge slide on him and his knowledge or whatever, and, and you know kind of uh justification for why you know he he is the way that he is like he because no one appreciates his genius or no one appreciates his knowledge or whatever and that's why he has to like feel like he is constantly proving himself to other people and that he is constantly lording his genius over people because in this in this idealized narrative again that he has created everyone is kind of you know fawning over his genius to some extent um and i i think that's what he wants um so i think the distortion of it is is part of, you know, I think the fact that he's unreliable is important, right? Because we don't even know, um, like, yes, if, if this stuff happened, yeah, it, it could explain why he is the way that he is. But maybe also this is just him twisting what happened so that he can fit his narrative of like, oh, I'm so misunderstood. No one gets me. No one gets my genius, whatever. Um, so I think the distortion is is also part of the point. And I I think with the whole aging thing, right, the physical distortion that we see, it's like, 
again, yes, we're seeing them at different times and different memories, but also there's this whole, like, you know, it almost makes you think of inception and like the whole idea, like, um, we have to maintain normalcy in the dream so that the person dreaming does not know that they are in a dream and therefore wake up from the dream. And like when the parents start getting older or when their clothes change or when, you know, she finds the janitor's uniform or something like that, it's like, here are these little like, um, things that are, are, like reality is starting to come into the dream is starting to bleed into the dream or bleed into the idealized narrative and his, the narrative that he's telling himself is starting to break down slowly as, you know, the projections of these characters of his parents of, um, of Jesse Buckley's character are constantly shifting and, you know, signaling to him that, Hey, something's not right here. Maybe this isn't actually real what you are, um, perceiving or remembering. Um, and so I think that whole aspect of it is interesting too. Well, I think yeah, that's so, an interesting thing about because I know we're <laughs> about to shift gears a little bit here, and I don't know if this is the direction you're about to go or not. But I think that this is a point in the film where I was I was still like, like I was starting to lose it a little bit because also at this point I think it should be said that you it's not apparent yet. I mean, maybe for you because you read the book, but if you're a newcomer to this piece of art, whether it be the book or the or the movie, it's not apparent yet that this is what's happening because you don't know that this isn't real, right? Like. It's yeah. not, I mean, like obviously something very so, strange is going on, but you, you don't understand that there necessarily yet that there's the connection between the janitor and, and this. Yeah. Yes. And no, I, I think that, yes, uh, you know, obviously it is presented as, as real, but also I don't think Kaufman and he himself has said this, that he's not so interested in like fooling audiences with some big plot twist, which I think is one thing one thing where the uh, book is a little bit different because I think the book does, you know, depend a lot on the twist that, Hey, Jake is yeah. actually, you know, created all of this. But um, I think that, so I, I think that, yes, you get the sense that something is not right. And, you know, from pretty early on, I think you could start to understand maybe what it is that is not right. That like, again, their, their poet, the poems end up being the same, right? The poem that she recites in the car and then they find Jake's poem later the paintings are the same or whatever. The, there's the whole thing with the pictures. Um, she's getting phone calls from herself, uh, you know, uh, apparently. Even like the first time we see yeah. the janitor at the beginning of the movie, it's like a shot from him in the back. And then it immediately cuts to a shot of Jake from the back. And so it's like, oh, hey, right there from the beginning, there's a clue. So I, I don't think he's trying to hide I the think ball. Yeah, I agree. Like, I don't think he's trying to hide the ball, but I don't think, I don't, it, like, okay, I'll just speak for myself. It didn't click for me yet yeah. that it's the janitor's like i don't know fever dream and, yeah and, and look i think that's one area where my knowledge of the book probably is slanting my view a little bit like um yeah because because you know i know we're, I know we're headed so i you, I'm you can't go back to the first time right i'm looking for the clues from the beginning like i said i think yeah. the average viewer who doesn't have the background they wouldn't think anything of that shot um going from the janitor to at, at his back to the back of jake um, but once you know where it's going, I think that shot means a lot more. But um, but yeah, so so it, it and it is a little more obtuse in the ending because I think I think it becomes pretty clear in the book that, you know, you know, what is going on here and what happens to Jake. I mean, like in the book, he like violently slashes his wrists and kills himself with a coat hanger. Um, that's how he commits suicide. We don't see that in the movie, right? Like we don't even see him commit suicide at all, right? It's just kind of like assume, assume it, yeah. Because of the the um, well, there's the you know the title. I'm thinking of ending things for one thing, um, but also the whole sequence with Oliver Platt as the pig, right? Um, leading him like to the afterlife, presumably. This who pig, is also the voice on the phone with uh, with Lucy. Yes, um, this pig who you know we learn like w was you know, infested with maggots. The parents found him like infested with maggots or whatever. And he yeah. had to be, they had, he had to be killed. Um, I, I do love that. There is a, there is some humor in this movie. Um, some, some kind of dark humor. I love when, after they've had the conversation about the pig, they go into dinner and there's the giant ham sitting on the table. And Tony Collette is like, Oh, all of our food here is homemade. And they all, they both just kind of look at the ham. Yeah, like that was funny. Oh shoot. Um, I thought oh, that no. was funny. Um, so okay, so but to quickly draw back because I actually yeah. meant to go a different direction with the, with what I was saying earlier than we where we ended up, but um, I was still with it somewhat like the movie at this point. But then I think the car ride back is where I got like started to get completely lost. Like the whole stop at Tulsi's, whatever the ice cream place, Tulsi Town, and whatever, and then the girls in the at the ice cream shop. 
I mean, I, I can intuit what I think that means relative to some of the other stuff here in the book, but I don't know. Maybe this is just me saying that it felt like this movie was longer and more repetitive than it needed to be. But um, yeah. So like, I, is there any is there any additional like do you glean something more from from that detour if you want to call it that than other than just deepening the I don't know the strangeness the eeriness of the whole thing to make you question more what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I think I think, again, it goes into what I'm saying about he's kind of distorting this narrative to make it seem like he's some sort of victim. Um, because I think these girls at the so first of all, like the Tulsi town thing is obviously a childhood memory of his. Right. Yeah, so definitely bring a childhood memory. Yeah. But also these girls, I think we are meant to see them as either or probably both. Number one, people who picked oh, yeah. on him when he was in school and number two the students at the school where he is the janitor now who probably make fun of him because he's an old lonely man who, um, you know, is the janitor or whatever. Um, and you know, in the book, there's a little more of like this conversation between two people that we don't really know who they are, but they're talking about, Oh, this awful thing happened at the school, you know, talking about the the guy who did it a little bit. Um, and so we get a little more of like what other people think about him, but I, I think that's how we can see those two girls, right. As, Right. Oh, they made fun of me. They still make these high school girls are still making fun of me. That's yeah. That, they're they're generic high school girls the who have always been making fun of him. Yeah. Again, that's why I'm the way that I am. What about uh, the third girl though, with the bruises? Yeah, that is one thing where I I am still, I, I'm still uh, questioning myself a little bit. I I wonder if that is kind of the again that is the moment where like reality is starting to set in because this is like this other character. Because he doesn't even remember seeing a third girl, right? He only sees the second, uh, the two girls. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder if it's like this is a sort of uh, intervention in his dr- in his dream in his memory in order to like uh, you know again signal to Jesse Buckley that hey something is wrong here. Um, just like Weird. you know the parents aging, the clothes changing, and stuff like that is saying to her, hey, wait a minute, this isn't you know reality is changing in front of me. Um, I wonder if this is kind of, this is kind of a, you know, a character who is meant to come in and like snap her out of it and snap him out of it, you know, it, by extension. But so I weird because she isn't the one that needs to be snapped out of it. She's not real. Yeah. But I mean, she, she isn't, but she's also him. Like, again, I, that, this is where some of the complicated nature of it, I think, comes in. But that is sort of my surface on yeah. a first watch. That is how I see maybe that interaction. Maybe that's how you can explain the presence of that character of just like um obtuse the film is or hey maybe maybe there's supposed to be some implication that he has committed an act of violence against a woman in the past or something that's what that is also a possibility um because i was thinking like he seems like really ashamed of yeah of this girl or something and then her him trying to ignore ignore her her existence as a way of like pushing it out i don't know yeah it has to me it has to be it has to mean something more than just trying to shake Right. And I I think that may be onto something there because I think, yeah, maybe it's like this was some girl who was also picking on him like the other two. Right. And he retaliated or whatever. And now he feels ashamed of it. I don't know. Or maybe Um, trying to be nice to him and and he took out his anger. I don't know. We're all just making shit up at this point. So maybe that is closer to the reality of um, of his situation than the fact that people were picking on him or, or whatever. I mean, like, yeah, maybe, maybe he got picked on or whatever, but maybe that's the part he's just, he's distorting a lot more. And the real part of the story is like, Hey, I actually treated these people terribly. Like I, maybe I was even physically violent against them. And, uh, and so their behavior towards me, um, is not, I mean, we know he was physically violent towards people. because like, yeah, he freaking kills the guy at the end of the song in Oklahoma. Yes. Um, and so, and so maybe their behavior towards me was not me like remembering them as like, oh, hey, they're fearful of my genius or misunderstanding my genius or whatever. It was them responding to me like being a creeper or, you know, an abuser or something like that. Um, yeah. Again, these I think the fact that the, the movie necessitates all of these interpretations and is asking all of these questions is part of the, the genius of the movie. Like, I, I think that um, there's so many it's so thought provoking and um there but what's are the point? What's so the point? This is because this is where I'm getting stuck. Stuck, right? Like, yeah, I agree that these are interesting things to think about. But I mean, I'm not even necessarily even drawing a comparison to a particular movie. But like, anytime I'm having these types of conversations, like, what is the macro point that is trying to be made with this film? If all these things are interesting and we want to think about all these things, like, what is the point? 
of us going through this process. And I and I have I'm not saying there isn't one. I just haven't yeah. I haven't come up with one. I mean, I, I think there I don't is know what the greater meaning is, I guess. Yeah, I I think that he is wants to um and this is where again I think a rewatch will pay will pay dividends is like mm-hmm. I think he wants to expand this question of like um you know uh, this whole thing about him creating a narrative about his past life about this girl and talk about why we create art in the first place or you know what it what it says about us as people um because there's that conversation they have early on before they get to the parents house about like the movie ideas in your head versus like the real ideas and how you spend so much time focused on the movie ideas in your head then that um you know you you don't think about reality or whatever and then you know there's some other little interludes like the whole thing with the janitor he's watching the robert zemeckis movie right uh, i mean so it's a fake movie but um it's like this again. He he he. Uh, it's, it's it's the scene that he watches in the movie is like this, you know, cheesy like idealized again. Like oh, Rom-com this guy game. shows up, yeah, and to win this girl over in a way that would never actually happen in real life. And that girl's um, name is Yvonne, which is one of the names that. Yeah, and actually, the actress in the movie briefly, like, replaces Jesse Buckley at one scene when they're in their car. But um, yeah. Um, so uh, people, as a side note, people thought that um, that he was taking a, like a big shot at Robert Zemeckis because apparently there's some sort of film that Charlie Kaufman is writing in the future and Zemeckis was like originally directing it. Now he's not directing it. Like maybe there's some conflict there. But apparently what happened was uh, he didn't even write anyone in the script for that. He didn't write the director. He just told his editor or whoever to put someone in. And so his editor put in Robert Zemeckis and when he watched the final cut of the movie, Charlie Kaufman, he said he just started laughing and was like, leave it in. Apparently, Robert Zemeckis is like totally cool with it, but um, leave it in. But I also think like this is the type of I mean, it's not inconsistent with the type of movies that Robert Zemeckis makes that this scene could be ripped out of one. But um, but and, and but then there's also this whole again, the whole Pauline Kale woman under the influence sequence where she is, you know, like the she's reciting the review basically of the movie. She goes into like pretentious film critic mode. Um, and I was reading that apparently in his last, uh, he wrote a novel recently, Charlie Kaufman did. And um, the main character was like a very pretentious film critic. And, um, and uh, See, look at all this homework you've done. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Um, and, you know, he portrays like he portrays film critics, certain like he uses real life film critics, often in the book and he like kind of it takes the, takes the piss out of them a little bit. Um, that Roger and so, and there were a lot of questions of like, Oh, is this just the character in his novel or is this like Charlie Kaufman responding to people who don't get his movies? Um, but I think he's reconciling with that again in this scene because she, yes, the way that he presents her getting the review is like very pretentious. And like, she's saying all these things that like, are like sound meaningful, but then when you actually think about them, they're like, does that actually mean anything? Um, these like weird platitudes and stuff that she has in the review. But then at the end, right, he is like, n- number one, he's like sort of intimidated by her knowledge. And number two, he's like, well, I see what you're saying. Like after the, after a long pause, he's like, I see what you're saying. Um, and so I think that's maybe Charlie Kaufman being like, Maybe I wish film critics wouldn't present themselves in in the in the manner that they do. But at the end of the day, I shouldn't have been so dismissive. Like they're making points um, because that review of Paul, that Paul and Kale wrote was very controversial. But anyway, as far as the larger point, I think that he is trying to say something about why we create art. Again, why like uh, you know why certain individuals are led to create certain types of art, like, you know, that have idealized narratives or whatever, or that are a better picture of their lives. Um, and so, I, again, I, I think there's something there. Um, I want to so, so, watch so, it. So what is, so what is the answer to that? Because that, that, the answer to that question seems really simple because, and not very because, insightful. Yeah, because maybe their reality is, um, because they maybe they're trying to better create, create a reality. Yeah, uh, but, but I think that... Um, I mean, maybe that's simplistic. I think that's an interesting idea. I think especially with all of the other stuff that's going on about the creation of, you know, the manic pixie dream girl and him lording his knowledge over everything. Like, I think I think there's a real relevance there to maybe how, um, again, we we 
idealize like great men or whatever and, and the way that but, they but who's the great men i guess is what i'm because i, cause I well, hear what you're saying he's I hear accepting saying. his nobel prize at the end right so no, i think I mean, in, in in his in his uh again i keep using the phrase but in his idealized narrative like this is how this whole thing ends right everyone appreciates his genius whatever he yeah. gets he gets the girl and at the end he is rewarded with the nobel prize for being you know the greatest dude ever um but then that is not the end of the movie right the end is actually the oklahoma's um you know song which i think is more like oh hey this is this is reality set in maybe i'm the villain not the hero um is that and, still is that reality though even i i, I uh, i'm still not sure what to make of that scene I don't know, but I mean, I, th I think it's important, but um, yeah, uh, I mean, we didn't really like, I think we just kind of had a free form discussion, which is kind of, which is um, what this movie needs, honestly. Yes, exactly. Um, is there anything else that you want to, you want to bring up? I'm not sure. I, I what, was honestly, what, I was what did you think about the Pauline Kale movie review sequence? I'm curious to know what your thoughts on that were. I didn't have, honestly, Scott, I didn't have any, okay. like, like, honestly, I just, I didn't know. Like it, like it, it, that was the point in the movie where I just felt completely lost about what the point of all of it was. Well, um, because I think there's also a running theme too of like, anytime she tries to display knowledge of, yeah, he dunks on something. her, right? Exactly, and and so I think that is a moment where it's like she just spews out all of this really intelligent sounding stuff, and yep. he's just like very like annoyed and is like, well, you know, I see what you're saying, and or or whatever. Um, so I think that's part of it as well, but. Yeah, I, I guess for me, Scott, I, I I mean, I definitely appreciate what you're saying. And, and that I mean, a lot of it, what you're saying, the context you're giving, anything makes a lot of sense for me. And maybe this is I mean, this is that this ultimately is maybe where we diverge and where we're not going to probably be able to reconcile is that I don't think the answer to the question of I mean, OK, well, first, I don't I don't see the question of why do we create art? Because I think art is I mean, art is such like a nebulous or I mean, it's a really vague thing. It can be so many different things. And in this case, art can mean something. I mean, art in this case is like knowledge. It sounds like, why do we create this? Well, no, no like I mean, fictionalizations of ourselves. Sorry. I, I just mean, I mean, they're talking about so many different types of art in the movie, right? Like sure. poetry, yeah. poetry, literature, film, paintings. Like, I think, like, I think there's th that idea is absolutely there in the movie. Now, I don't know exactly what it all adds up to, but I think sure. that he wants to be making some larger commentary about, um, yeah, you know, uh, you know, c connecting yeah. what Jake does to the greater reality of what artists do when they create sure. art of any type. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I agree with that point. I agree that he's trying to do that. For me, he doesn't connect the dots in any way. And like, look, I'm, I'm not saying that there's not some invisible line there that you can like uncover through enough watches or enough research or enough thinking. But I think this. I found it really difficult because at some point this movie just felt so out there. Like I know that there are points being made and I, and to me just none, none of them mattered. Like I, I think that the, the end, the end, just let me finish for a second. Just yeah. it, like the end, the end saying here of like this guy who is not that impressive of a man who is probably not even that good of a guy has done, probably has done some horrible things and he's trying to make like in his own moment of despair, right? Like right before he's committing suicide, he wants to create a mental image of himself that is better than he and this idealized call it an idealized version of himself to make him feel good about himself in his final moments. I just don't think that that's an interesting insight. Just like I mean, like I, I'm not going to compare it to other movies. It's not that I don't think there's any point. But like there, I think there's movies out there that think that they've made really interesting points. And I think that this film has, has thinks it's made an interesting point. And I'm not sure that to my depth of understanding right now, it has made an interesting point. Yeah, it, it seems to me like what you're saying is um there may be something there but it's not worth the effort to figure it out like it's not worth to go going back and like because of the strangeness or whatever the of the experience yeah, it's not it's not worth putting in the time and effort that it would require in order to understand every single thing that is going on here maybe maybe i mean for, for, I, I think that is that is mostly right i think that mm -hmm. the, the problem is is that the answer that I think that I would get to, which doesn't necessarily mean that is the answer that I would get to if I went through this exercise of trying to go through everything and, and figure it out, that answer doesn't seem worth it, I guess, to use that language or particularly insightful enough for me to want to spend a lot of calories thinking thinking about it and trying to unpack it. And um, because ultimately, if the answer is there's this, I mean, there's this very lonely man who hasn't amounted to very much in life, but but thinks that he has been better than 
reality has shown him to be and trying to create like trying to create that island nature like maybe this is just my own personal experiences but that just doesn't surprise me very much and i and i think that men being crap and thinking they're better than that is not a particularly insightful point in 2020 which i know it's not the it's not the it's not the wholeness of the point yeah. that we made but it does seem like a big crux of of what's being said but there's also this huge merit meta narrative to your point here there's this huge meta narrative about kaufman himself um not the, not that he's the main character in this film obviously but like there is this meta narrative and analysis of himself that is just so inaccessible to me because i just don't have any experience with it i mean he's not the main character but i think you would be foolish to say that he doesn't see some of himself in the main character. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. um so yeah i mean i i i think there is a, a larger point there i i am intrigued enough by what i saw in the movie to like want to want to go back and watch it i just think it's such a wild original thing um but yeah and, and you know the whole maybe a sort of a last point i think the the whole thing that i'm talking about with like the creation of art like i i think the fact that he is connecting jake's story to something to some larger commentary that commentary was not necessarily within the book so unlike the whole like aspects of the story like oh he's invented her or whatever that i knew were coming that is something that i was like forming as i watched the movie so that i think that is the thing which i will be able to more strongly hone in on maybe when i go back and, and re-watch it but um yeah i i definitely want to rewatch it um which i think sounds like where we differ there too Oh yeah, I mean, also this this movie is like so. I mean, this movie is so long. Yeah, and I mean, um, I was fascinated throughout, but yeah, I think I we were making apparently some other critic has already said this, but I think most people will turn this movie off before they get thirty minutes in. Yeah, Matt Singer was saying that he thinks that Netflix, because some people are saying, oh, this is you know perfect Netflix movie. It allows him to be you know as experimental as he's ever wanted to be, whatever. But I think Matt Singer is probably right in saying that from a bottom line perspective like netflix although i guess what the rule in netflix now is if you turn it on for one minute you get a, a view but um two minutes, but yeah same difference basically. yeah that people are going to turn this off after 30 minutes and i think that is true like look if you look at the reviews for this movie yes it has i think it's mostly positive but like you yeah. will find you will find people who are in scott's camp for sure of like i don't feel like this is worth my time or this was needlessly confusing whatever um this is a classic film where the critic score is going to differ a lot from the audience yes absolutely um but i i will be interested to see like what the kaufman heads like what the people who are really big charlie kaufman oh, they're gonna heads. love it yeah i th i think they probably will too but um i was surprised at how much i enjoyed it just because i ex i did expect it to be you know sort of pretentious it is. and it is pretentious but I also that doesn't have I, to be a bad thing, but it is very pretentious. Yes, but I also think that number one, he's satirizing pretension in a way, but also he is. I think there is a level of self reflection and vulnerability that he is also showing in the movie. Um, you know, with the whole it, unpacking the sort of trope that is at the very heart of um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, right? Maybe his most beloved film. So. Um, there you go. Uh, that That's our discussion of I'm thinking of anything that I'm sure we could go on longer, but nobody wants to hear that. So uh, do you have a favorite scene or moment from this film, Scott? Sure. I, I think the um, there's a couple moments, I think, around the dinner table uh, with, uh, with the parents, right? And when I think that you really do start to get this unsettling feeling between going out to the barn and hearing the story about the rotting, you know, the pig being eaten by maggots and come inside and you see the dog. Is it Jimmy? Is the dog's name? like shaking think, does it not change i don't know it might, i don't but, think the dog's name changes but yeah. it changes whether he's alive or not right um, it changes whether you see the dog because at one point she's like petting the invisible dog even yeah exactly uh -huh. um and then yeah having those moments with jimmy like shaking for like a really uncomfortable amount of time and then you get around the dinner table and you have this like weird interaction between the parents and jesse buckley's character and i think that that is i think that is a really good scene honestly that was the point in the movie where i was still very engaged i was interested and it's right after that when the film starts to lose me but i do think it was good for for that scene yeah we didn't talk too much about that but i, I do think it is effective i think that um again it, it is unsettling like because of how just slightly off it is from reality like i i mentioned mulholland drive like i think one of the most chilling images in mulholland drive is when Laura Herring's character is like laying in bed with her eyes like wide open and just starts saying silencio like into the ceiling like 
it's not like this outwardly like what the heck thing like because people sleepwalk they talk in their sleep whatever but there's something about like the way that her eyes are open the way she's saying it also like the old people laughing in the back of the taxi at the beginning he wants you to be unsettled from the very beginning i think kaufman is going for the the same sort of thing here because like look the the parents are acting weird like i said and then they're like uh tony collette is is like laughing more than she should be at certain things and then jesse buckley starts doing it too right and you're like what the heck is going on here so i thought that was effective but um i a scene that we haven't mentioned that i did really like even though it kind of it it, it gave me some la la land vibes but the uh the dance sequence in the school at the end um, i loved it though I, I think it was uh you know it's it's him um again going through like their love story again kind of like the end of la la land right if they had if they had gotten together this is what it would have looked like really because i read that completely differently well how'd you read it i read it as this is this is the real love story that he saw happening with this girl that he wanted to be with like this guy being successful and him being envious of that and coming in at the end and murdering the guy to like take her take to take the love away from him since he can't have it I think I don't think we're saying different things. Like I think he is. He well, is it's, a, it's not the love story. I, okay, I, I maybe. Okay, maybe I see what you're saying. Yeah, like he imagines him. But see, the things that I don't think it makes sense with the end of the the end of it. If it, if he's imagining that being their love story that they didn't have, then he wouldn't come in at the end and kill the guy. But I mean, I think it's like the, the that is the ultimate moment of like him realizing this isn't reality and so that is like what the, the murdering it represents um and like that is when hey you're gonna have to decide like do you want to keep living or not and he decides i i don't because there's <laughs> we keep going on but like there's the the phone call thing uh, that she keeps getting the phone calls and there's like this what is the one question or, or he's bringing up something about like there is only one question yeah in the book they're more explicit about that like the one question is what are you waiting for uh, and there's actually like four pages in the book at the end that are just what are you waiting for what are you waiting for what are you waiting for um and so i think maybe maybe the movie would have been could have been a little more clear there if we had learned what the question was right because i think that makes his ultimate fate the fact that he does decide to kill himself a little more like oh i understand that that is what happens yeah, what this movie really needed was five minutes of what are you waiting for being screened by all exactly. of into the phone. Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, my, yeah, so my favorite scene, I, I really like the dance. I thought it was kind of a strangely, even though, I mean, it's not meant to be like touching or whatever, but like, you know, the the fact of, of someone, you know, remembering what could have been with, uh, you know, this this person. Obviously, this is the, showing the dark side of that idea, but, um, you know, La La Land, I think, uh, is, is a good example of doing this type of sequence, too. But I thought that was a really creative way, if maybe a little bit pretentious. Um, well, La La Land is an actual musical. To sort of hammer the point home. Um, yes, it is. That is true. Uh, but Charlie Kaufman, again, he always has musical numbers in his movie. So, In Anomalisa? Um, Does he have a musical number in Anomalisa? I think so. I think that is one of his tropes that he's known for having is that and I think maybe even at the end of the film is where he's known for having musical numbers. Mm. But um, I haven't seen Eternal Sunshine in a spot, uh, of the Spotless Mind in a long, long time, so I can't even remember really where it is in there. But um, yeah, so put a score on it, Scott. It's going to come out lower because we didn't really talk about too much how much I, I didn't like this film. But I didn't like it, guys, and I wouldn't recommend it. 4.0. That's a good GPA. Um, nine. <laughs> 9.3 for me. I think this is the biggest disagreement we've had on a film, probably. But, you know. Jake, uh, Jake, Jake's GPA, or at least what he thought he had. Yeah. 4.0. <laughs> I, I get it. Uh, I, I get why this isn't going to work for everyone. It really worked for me. I think it could even go up, like I said, on a rewatch. So, uh, there you go. I can't wait to relitigate this at the end of the year. <laughs> no, I don't I don't think that will be happening. But uh, Well, I mean, it will probably be on my list. But, anyway. Um that's our review of I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we get back, we'll be talking about the new trailer for the James Bond film, No Time to Die, as well as some news involving The Godfather that we were not expecting to get this week. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, Scott, a couple of news items to hit here before we uh, conclude this episode. First, uh, 
new trailer for No Time to Die. This is the James Bond film that was supposed to come out earlier this year, um, is now slated, I believe, for a November release. Um, and, you know, probably is going to be coming out in theaters based on, you know, Tenet having come out and all of that stuff. Um, but this is going to be Daniel Craig's last outing as James Bond. Um, it's going to be an epic two-hour, 50-minute movie, apparently. Well, Carrie, Carrie, Carrie Fukunaga directing um, Ana de Armas uh, is, is showing up here. Um, we have Christoph Waltz returning. Um, Leia Sadu. Yeah, uh, Leia Sadu also returning. Um, what did you think about this trailer, Scott? Well, if you rewind like a long time, I honestly don't remember the last time we talked about No Time to Die, but it was obviously before <laughs> everything happened with COVID because this is one of the first victims of coronavirus in terms of films that we're releasing because this was supposed to come out like April 4th or whatever the date was. Yeah. Uh, and then got pushed to it like a, just right before, I think right before Thanksgiving to your point, Scott, about the November release. But I wasn't that into the first trailer. I was like, this is fine. Like, whatever. It's a Bond movie. I like them. I'll watch them. You don't have to sell me on it. But seeing this most recent trailer, Scott, I like this trailer a lot more. And I can't even necessarily pinpoint why, but it, maybe it was just because I felt like I got more of everything out of this trailer. I don't know what. Like, I feel like I got more out of Ana de Armas, for sure, who I think is one of the more exciting additions to the cast, in my opinion. Um, but I think also just all around, I think you got more of a feel for what this movie is going to be and less of just this sort of like classic bond is old and aging and, and like, will he, he's like coming back one more time, which I just felt because like of the narration in the first trailer. I'm just like, yeah, sure. Exactly. Uh, he's old. <laughs> he's coming back. It's like the whole narrative of the last movie too. Um, and Skyfall even. And so I, I think that I finally just getting more of the kind of movie that I want, like more of the spy elements of the, of the film in this trailer. It also didn't hurt that I saw this on an IMAX screen before Tenet. We were talking about watching the trailer. It's overall, but I'm a lot more excited now, honestly, than I was before. And obviously you've been pretty vocal about how you feel about the runtime of this film. I don't know if the runtime has been confirmed yet, just because obviously it was confirmed back in April, but they've had this time to do more to it. Cause I think there was some reactions to the movie being that long. So we'll see where it finally does end up. Who knows? Maybe they'll add another hour just to flip people off. But I doubt it. I think it'll probably end up around two and a half, two hours, 40 minutes. I think right now it's like 250, right? Like it's, I can't remember exactly how long yeah. it was. But uh, I, I think overall, I'm more excited about this now than I was before. And seeing the thing in IMAX or seeing the trailer in IMAX just reminded me that I like seeing movies on the big screen, which is something that I hadn't necessarily forgotten, but I'd forgotten how much I like it with Tenet this weekend, obviously. And seeing a bunch of the, you know, blockbuster trailers that are showing before it. And, yeah, I can't wait for this one. I can wait for this one, to be honest with you. Um, I, I'm just not the biggest James Bond fan, if we're being honest. I, I mean, I have seen a lot of the movies. There are ones I love Craig. I mean, I just think Daniel Craig is such a Yeah, I think you could definitely argue that he's the best Bond. I think that's absolutely a, a fair argument to make. I mean, there are some movies that I really enjoy. I mean, recently, Casino Royale and Skyfall. I mean, there there are good movies from like every single era of Bond, in my opinion. Yeah. But are they movies that I go back and rewatch or like consider to be my favorites? And it, you know, often no. So much of these Bond films is just like that same mechanical formula to some extent. Like you know, you're going to get the big set piece in the opening of the movie, and then MI6, you're going to be you know going to go to Q and get your gadgets, and then the Bond girl is going to appear, or like, and maybe there's going to be a villain Bond girl, and then you're going to have the actual villain show up, and he's going to be some over the top you know mustache twirling character. Um, it just gets a little repetitive and old for me, and you know, especially stretched out over almost three hours. I mean, yeah. Look, I just don't think Bond has had a lot of character development over the years, and maybe maybe the long running time means, hey, they are going to try to go some. They are going to try to go a little bit deeper with this. I watched uh, Carrie Fukunaga's uh, Jane Eyre re recently, and I thought it was fantastic. So I I have a lot of trust in him as a director based on that. But I just don't know if you know this movie is going to look more deeply into bond or if i really care if the movie looks more deeply into bond sure. um and i'm not enthused by rami malik as the villain either <laughs> i mean like i think some actors are really good when they're over the top you know like uh like maybe a christoph waltz for example or a kenneth Branagh, but, uh yeah sure like some of the recent villains they've had I'm not sure that that's the case with Rami Malek. Uh, although, you know, people, obviously there's disagreement with me. I mean, he won an Oscar for doing an over-the-top performance. But um, anyway, we won't, we won't relitigate well, that. Scott, but, really wants, Scott wants to talk about it again, guys. Yeah. Um, John Cho was right there. Um, no. Uh, but I think that, uh, so, th so those are the elements that are like, huh, I don't know. 
I mean, of course, we will see this movie. It'll probably look and sound great on the big screen in a few weeks or in a few uh, months. But um, whether I'm going to, you know, like really love it, whether it's going to be one of my favorite movies of the year, like I don't think I'm going to enjoy it more than Tenet probably. Um, but yeah, I we'll agree. see. The good news is that with Craig Bonds, the odd number ones are the are the good ones. So this is this that is, is number five. So uh, yeah. buckle buckle up because this could, could be a good one. And I hope that it is right. If it, I mean, I see Carrie Joji Fukunaga, and I think True Detective season one. Yeah. I think uh, I mean I haven't seen Jane Eyre, but I think of things like that. And, and to say that you know, I mean, originally it wasn't like Danny Boyle was going to direct this. And I think that if you had to, Maybe, yeah. If you had yeah, to, I think you're right, yeah. if you had to say which one of those two directors is going to go a direction where it's going to explore the psychology a little bit more of Bond and and try to make something of the fact that this may be his last mission or whatever, at least for at least for Daniel Craig's, I would trust Carrie Joji Fukunaga to do that because yes, I, I know we disagree on the quality and uh, of True Detective season one and and the directions that that goes, but to say that he isn't trying to explore the, some psychology in that film or in that yeah. TV series, I think would it'd be lying to yourself even even i mean you can judge its its degree of success i'm sure but uh it's definitely trying to do something there and i think that i would be surprised if he didn't try to do something here with bond as well and i think that's exciting i think that you're talking about the tropes of bond i think that's probably true uh i think leia said is going to be the bond girl again basically here i don't get the impression that anadarmus uh or oh my gosh i'm forgetting who who is the the other double o agent lashana lynch lashana lynch yeah Yeah. um are going to be bond girls i mean they certainly don't look like it from the trailer at least um but i mean yeah people think lashana lynch is going to be the next bond so yeah i have my own thoughts about that i think she actually might be she or anna darmas might actually also be like another villain in the movie to be to be honest yeah see if that I honestly am leaning that lashana lynch might be a villain in the movie but we'll see i'm probably wrong about that but even even that like they did that in Goldeneye, right? Sean Bean was the double O agent who turns out to be a villain. Oh, what a twist. I mean, but sure. no, I know, I know what you're saying about the directors. Like I, and I, and I agree like Danny Boyle is a very good director, but he probably would have made a safer bond film than, uh, yeah. than Fukunaga is going to make like, and look, I don't think I disagree with you about true detective. It's just not my thing. Like, sure. Totally I, fine. Yeah. I fully acknowledge that. Yeah. He's doing something psychological there. Jane Eyre, he's doing the same thing. So, I would expect that there's going to be some more interesting elements to this, but is it enough to like captivate me for two hours, 50 minutes? I don't know. No. And I think that's fair. That's fair. It's going to have to prove itself if it's going to have that runtime, but we had some good long movies last year. So I'm hoping we that do. I'm holding out. Ho- I mean, ten at two, two and a half hours is a long film. Uh, I'm hoping that we can continue our run <laughs> of good movies that are quite long. Cause obviously we had some less good two hour and 50 minute movies. I it chapter two from his true detective uh, partner. Andy Muschietti. So. Yes, that is true. Yikes. Um, moving on from that, Scott, um, I-, I wanted to bring up this very interesting story that came out um, that about regarding the Godfather Part Three um, <laughs> and the fact that the Godfather, a, a director's cut or a director and author's cut, maybe you can call it yes. that uh, that Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo, who of course wrote the Godfather novels, um, have worked on together, or you know, was their cut of the movie. Um, is going to be released into theaters. Um, so we're going to get a, I can't remember exactly what the full name yeah, is. You've got to get the name yeah, right. If you're absolute word salad of like, hold on, I'll yeah. pull it up. Yeah, but it's it's like Puzo and Coppola's restored Godfather Part 3 colon director's, I mean, you know, something ridiculous. Like Mario Puzo's The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know how you feel about this guy. I, I don't think anyone was asking for this, right? I am one of the people who thinks The Godfather Part Three is fine. I, it's a good movie, I agree. right? Like I, I, it, it's of course it's not on the same level as the first two, but I don't think it's the disaster that anyone thinks it is. Um, Look, but when you, know, when you make an average movie after making two of the best films of all time, people are going to like set dumpsters on fire yeah. and say you're the worst person ever. But like the film is fine. The film it is like, fine. In fact, I'd say that towards the end of that movie, when when it has its kind of like simultaneous kill sequence, like that's one of the best scenes in like, all mm-hmm. the Godfather. That's an amazing, amazing scene. But, you know, unless they are, unless Francis Ford Coppola is cutting his daughter completely out of the movie, um, then I'm not sure that this is going to be something that I'm interested in seeing or that it's going to be, you know, way more successful than than it was the first time around. So just kind of a weird story. Do you have any other thoughts on this? Well, it's it's supposed to be a new beginning and ending, right? It's not like they're, yeah. they're changing the middle part of it. Do I have any thoughts about this? 
Uh, I don't know who the hell gave them money to do this because yeah. <laughs> they're not going to make any off of this. I don't. Think. I mean, what Francis Ford Coppola? When's the last time he made a movie? Like early two thousands, I think. Yeah. So I think he's just bored, honestly. I mean, I think Paramount Picture is okay. This is a Paramount, like Godfather's Paramount. I'm pretty sure, but like they're really like the absolute dumpster fire they're in over there at at by at Paramount and Viacom, and they're pumping money into a recut of one of like unfairly so but one of the more hated movies of all time like guys come on what do you like the the problem was not the beginning and the end of this film hey they're making a snyder cut too but yeah also i don't, I don't think people there were as many vocal advocates for yeah i haven't heard hashtag released so hopefully uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh they, they were out there they just predated twitter maybe but, yeah that's uh, probably true we'll never know um yeah Okay, I think that should just about do it for this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, Scott, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? At Shelton 2013 And I am at Scarvy Dent. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash mediapluckpods. Uh, even if you can't support us over there, we'd really appreciate it if you like, rated, reviewed, subscribe, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course... We hope you'll be back for our next episode on which we will be reviewing the latest Disney live action remake, Mulan. Uh, Until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.